there was discouragement, there was hesitation, but eventually there's times when I take massive action. I like the adventure. Starting a humor publication was all about like, I think I can do this. I need to do something more exciting and adventurous than going to class every day. CEOs often feel stuck in the grind of scaling their business and feel like they're missing out on the best parts of life, like family, friends, or travel. On this podcast, CEOs come to take themselves and their companies to the next level. Let's dive into the millionaire mind with your host, Dallin Schultz. Hey, welcome back to another Millionaire Mind episode where I have some of the most successful business owners sharing what motivates them to get out of bed every morning and how they elevate themselves and their companies to the next level. Entrepreneurship is full of stories of people struggling to make ends meet, but they have a vision, something that they want to accomplish, so they keep pushing. They have the grit, they have the consistency, and they persist. And if they stay with it long enough, what I've often seen is that they finally catch a big break. Now, our guest today is a multi-Emmy-nominated writer, producer, and voice actor, and he has quite the story of him catching his first break. So really excited to get into our show today and talk about his journey and also the opportunities that it led into as he continued pushing. So without further ado, a special welcome to our guest, Mark Henteman. Mark, appreciate you joining us today. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited to be on your show. So you're low-key famous, and I don't think a lot of people probably know that until they hear about what you're actually involved in. So why don't you take a couple minutes to share with our listener just a little bit about who you are and what you do? Okay. Yeah. I am a longtime writer and producer for television. I've been on Family Guy since the beginning, back in 1999. I've created a couple shows. I've written a movie that's in the works right now. Yeah, but then I also do real estate and and they're kind of tied in, you know, maybe when I get into, into our story, elaborate on how those two things have been connected through my whole career, but I invest in multifamily. I have a company called uh, Quantum Capital Inc. I mean, we do real estate syndications. We've been doing that basically since I started on Family Guy. And yeah, I've gotten into other things. I've grown to like entrepreneurial ventures. I'm doing a video game launch with a Silicon Valley company that we're going to try to pitch it to Apple and just other projects. Always like like collaborating with people and just getting stuff done, see what we can achieve. Absolutely. So Mark and I got connected through a mutual friend. We attended a summit out in Newport Beach a couple months ago. And it's interesting, if this is your first time listening, I'll be the first one to tell you that this isn't a real estate show. But if you've been listening for a while, you'll realize that a lot of our guests, although they're business owners and entrepreneurs in different industries, quite often have real estate in their portfolio as well. So it's a great mix to be able to get some business, some entrepreneurship, some mindset, but also see how these people's minds work and the opportunities that present themselves to them as they're pursuing their goals. So Mark, let's take it back. When did this journey really begin for you? Uh, let me think. So I was a very introverted kid, a uh, weird kid. My mom said I was the easiest of her four children. She said my other siblings were bouncing off the walls. And she's like, you would just sit in the corner for hours and hours and draw. And I was like, oh, great. Maybe you should have checked me out for autism. 
maybe I was on the spectrum or something, but I loved to draw growing up. And yeah, as I grew up, I was kind of naturally creative. I could draw, I could do that kind of stuff. And I was drawn to it when I was in high school. A friend of mine who was going through like the art path, she just knew that I drew and she said, uh, you know, she was working at uh, SeaWorld and another amusement park that were close to each other. They had concessions there owned by the same company. And she said, they need a caricature artist. You can draw. I'm like, I don't know how to draw caricatures. You know, she brought me to the SeaWorld management and they had me draw the people there. And they said, you're hired. And that launched me into, uh, you know, try scrambling to learn how to do caricatures. And you're dealing with you know, thousands of amusement park visitors, many of them who are drunk and they sit down like, draw me. And you'd have to draw them and they have no patience. They're squirming around. So you got to capture them in like a couple minutes and have something that looks like them. And uh, that was my first gig. I had worked at like Chick-fil-A and some food venues, but yeah, that was my first art job getting paid for it. And then I went to college and I looking back, a big factor was I was bored with my major in college. I was a organizational communications major, which I still don't know what that was supposed to be to this day. Just uh, going to ask you what that right. means, what it is. <laughs> I still am scratching my head as to what that was. And that's what I uh, graduated with. But being a little bit bored in college, I started a humor publication and our school was kind of, it was a big Midwestern college. And I had heard about the Harvard Lampoon, didn't really know anything about it, but it was this, it's this like 200 year old institution at Harvard that they put out a quarterly humor publication. It's satire, you know, they make fun of anything. And so I was like, that's so cool. I got to do that at this school because this school is ridiculous. And I did. And I gathered some friends and spent a lot of my college career drawing cartoons, influenced by Gary Larson. And I also wrote, I did everything. Like I was the founder of this alternative newspaper and it became like a big, pretty popular thing in college. And I wanted to do it after college. I kind of kicked around, but I was a waiter af after school, maybe a, a year after college. I got hired. A friend of mine saw an ad in Spin Magazine. If you have any recollection of Spin Magazine, um, it was a music magazine. It probably is out of business at this point. It was trying to be, it was like a Rolling Stone knockoff. I answered an ad in Spin Magazine looking for a greeting card writer. And one of my friends who knew I was broke said, you should apply for this. And I was like, I have no idea how to write a greeting card. But uh took a bunch. I did the laziest submission possible. I took a bunch of my cartoons that I had drawn in college, put them on folded pieces of paper and wrote happy anniversary in the inside. And I sent them off. Uh, you know, It was like a 10 minute scrambled. Okay, here's a submission and put it in the mail. And they hired me. And I was hired in the alternative humor department at American Greetings, which was a brand new department during the 90s, because if you remember the 90s, everything was kind of alternative and, and that was the big buzzword. And everybody's trying to capture Generation X and Generation X was not buying greeting cards at that time. So they were like, we need to court that market. So you guys go be the alternative humor department. American Greetings is a giant Fortune 500 company. 
and they just put us out off in the corner somewhere and we had no oversight but we were the alternative humor department and we just kind of did whatever we wanted and so we wrote weird surreal really stupid greeting cards just to amuse ourselves and they were more uh parodies of greeting cards than actual greeting cards and nobody bought them there was like a rack in our department kind of like the racks you see at cvs or rite aid and it had our card line on it with the sales figures on little stickers and it was almost a badge of honor if your card got a 0.0 which means nobody in the united states test marketing bought your card so yeah it did that and it was fun it was a great job i was hired as a writer and an illustrator so i was a little bit i got thrown in this position so i'm like who's my favorite cartoonist i don't have many but I loved Gary Larson, The Far Side. And so I guess my cards were probably a little reminiscent of that, a bit of borrowed some of that style, the weirdness. And yeah, and it was a great job being there for a, maybe after a year, a little, I was there for about a year and a half. And I got to the point where I'm like, I think I don't want to do this for the rest of my life. I want to aspire to try to do something else. So I looked online the internet was pretty new and i looked online for agencies because uh that's all i knew about the entertainment business was that you needed an agent so i google searched agencies the william morris agency in new york city popped up that was the top result and it's the biggest biggest oldest most prestigious talent agency in the world and i called to ask like how do you submit and some, you know, New York receptionist just barked at me, send it to the mailroom and hung up. And I was like, oh, who am I to try to call the William Morris agency in New York? And I kind of forgot about it. I kind of like, ah, nah, this is a waste of time. But eventually I put my cards, a bunch of my greeting cards in an envelope, sent it blindly to the mailroom at the William Morris agency and figured I'm never going to see that 88 cents again in postage but miraculously my mom calls me one day at work while i'm american greetings and she said you got a call from somebody at william wallace i'm like what what are you saying she's like i'm like could you possibly mean william morris and she's like yeah that was it that was it they left a number so i called the number and a friendly voice answered this time and she introduced herself. She said, my name is Betsy. I have been an assistant to an agent at William Morris for the last four years. And I just got promoted to be an agent. I have no clients. So I went looking through the mailroom and I saw your submission. And she said, I've read everything in that mailroom and I liked your submission. Would you be interested in writing for television or movies? And I was like, yeah, of course I would. What do I have to do? And she explained I would need a spec script, maybe more than one, and then give her material and she'll try to shop it around to producers and studios and all that. So I was like, wow, yeah, that sounds great. And I remember she forwarded me like at the time, this is going to sort of timestamp that where I was at the time, but like she sent me a couple Frasier scripts, Seinfeld scripts, maybe Spin City and they were awesome like i was a huge fan of seinfeld and this was the production draft 
of the script and i had never seen a script before let alone like a real production i'm like i know that name that's the writer i know those writers on the show and it had all like these notes on it and stuff it was so cool i have them somewhere but i feel like those are those are like relics I should find and, and hang on to. So I attempted to go down the road of writing a spec script and it was very daunting. And, you know, I did a draft. I was writing a draft and I didn't finish it, but she calls me back probably two or three weeks after we have our call. And she said, I didn't tell you this on the phone, but I had forwarded your greeting cards to the late show with David Letterman. And they just called me and they want to meet you. How soon can you get here? And so my mom loaned me some airline miles. I flew up to New York the next day, went into the Ed Sullivan Theater on Broadway. And they said, do you want to work here? And I said, yeah, I want to work there. That's awesome. Mark, I want to stop you here for a minute. There's this reoccurring theme I've noticed throughout your story so far. And I want to dig into that a little bit. Initially, one of your first jobs, it sounds like it was probably right out of high school, was drawing these caricatures, correct? Yep. And then you started a newspaper, and then you got into greeting cards, and then you were going to start writing scripts, and then you got this job opportunity with David Letterman. Each one of these situations, you shared with us and the listener that like, you never drew caricatures before. You didn't know what you were supposed to do, but you figured it out. And then you started a newspaper. You've never started a newspaper before but you knew you wanted to do it and you figured it out. Then you started writing for greeting cards. You've never written greeting cards before, but you <laughs> figured it out. What is it? Looking back as you reflect on it, what do you think it was internally that was telling you, hey, Mark, you don't know what this is, but you've got it. What caused that? Where did that, I guess, drive and persistence come from? Yeah, I think I'm always up for an adventure or just willing to try and, and fail. And, uh, you know, of those three things or four jobs that I entered, the most dangerous or terrifying one was the greeting card. No, not the greeting card company, but the amusement park, like going to like SeaWorld is what it's called. Does anybody know SeaWorld anymore? I oh, think yeah. They went yeah, out yeah. Of this. Okay. You know, no, it. no, they're still around. Yeah. But <laughs> when I was at SeaWorld, and my friend who was going down the art path, she was an art school student. I had never took an art class in my life, but she's like, you can draw. Like, I've seen you draw. You can draw. You need a job. I'm going to get you a job at SeaWorld. That was the terrifying one because SeaWorld is filled with drunk, sunburned <laughs> people like wandering the park and draw me. You know, some couple will walk up and the woman will go like, Oh, you, it'd be so funny. Get drawn, get drawn. And the guy might be like, I don't want to be, he's got a big giant beard in his hand. And he's like, I don't want to get drawn. He can't draw me. You better make me look good. <laughs> and so if I made them look terrible, they'd be like, what? Like I'd get threatened. And it was unpredictable. You had no idea yeah, it was, if it they was, were going to like it or not. Right. <laughs> so going to take a swing at you. So this trait of yours i think is so key with entrepreneurs they don't always know how they're going to figure it out an opportunity presents itself either presents itself or they recognize it and they decide to lean into it and to figure it out now it sounds like some of these opportunities and correct me if i'm wrong sounds like some of them you weren't like 
really actively looking for they more kind of presented themselves to you would you agree with that or is that inaccurate definitely i've had some strokes of luck along the way i think i got halfway there like i was taking action consistently but i think looking back like there was definitely like how did that agent walk into the mailroom and find my material at that so time what- So what can you share just based on your experience with those business owners, entrepreneurs that are head down, working extremely hard, they're very focused on what they're trying to do, and they just seem like they're beating their head against the wall versus those that opportunities just seem to kind of flow to them. Is there any advice or anything that you could share given your experience? I think it's just take massive action. I know now that you bring it up, when I was at American Greetings and I called the William Morris Agency in New York and they kind of barked at me like, send it to the mailroom. I had already prepared the manila envelope with all my submissions. I had put that together, but I was so discouraged by that like three second call where the operator just basically gave me a blunt response and hung up. And I said, this is not, I remember specifically thinking like, it's not worth the 80 cents I'm going to have to spend on this envelope to send it because it's pointless. And I stuck it in my drawer. So kind of like, it was like a punch in the face and I stuck it in my drawer and my desk drawer at American Greetings. And I didn't revisit it for a while. It was felt like maybe a month. And finally I got sick of looking at this this manila envelope and just put it in the mail. But yeah, so there was discouragement, there was hesitation, but like eventually there's times when I take massive action. I like the adventure. Starting a humor publication was all about like, I think I can do this. I don't know. Let's figure it out. That was totally like, you know, you're in college. I need to do something more exciting and adventurous than going to class every day at this college. So I'm going to start a humor publication that makes fun of the whole institution of college. And that's really what kind of started you down this path too. Like you had no idea that you were going to have an opportunity to write with David Letterman. Oh, absolutely not. But because you were taking action early on and you had some ideas and thoughts and you leaned into it, sounds like it opened those opportunities. And it's interesting looking back because you held on to this envelope, you said for about a month before you mailed it in. How soon after did you mail it in? Did you get that call from that agent saying, hey, I just got promoted to an agent. I started looking through the mailroom. I saw your stuff. Yeah, I feel like it was maybe, it felt like it happened kind of quickly, probably like a month to six weeks from when I, you know, sort of put it in the mail and forgot about it. Have you wondered if you had sent it in initially right after that first phone call? (laughs) Yeah, the timing of it. Has that crossed your mind? Yeah. Yeah. No, there was totally luck. And, you know, while we're on this point of like what the lessons to pull from that experience was, is one that I've definitely looked back on is like probably not like drawing caricatures, but spending four years of college kind of blowing off my major. I got the major, I I completed it, but spending like my passion was this humor publication. And I was drawing cartoons daily and I was writing articles daily. And if I go back, you know, if you fast forward, like, okay, why did I get hired on Letterman? 
Why did I get hired on Family Guy after that? And then why was I good, like amongst very talented people? And it goes back to, I think those four years of college, every day sitting down, figuring out a joke, like, or a couple jokes, like that I would put into this thing. I was getting my 10,000 hours. Like, and if I compare that with new writers entering the Family Guy writers' rooms, I, clearly see like some of them are hopeless like when they start and if they put in enough time and enough effort if they put in their ten thousand hours you watch them and you watch them evolve from like someone who's a hopeless lost cause to being one of the better writers in the room so it's really putting in that time and it sounds like you went to school to become a writer, even though that's not what your degree was, <laughs> right. but it gave you opportunities to tap into that creative mind of yours and tap into something that you were really passionate about. And it sounds like it was a way to just kind of get through the day and kind of cope with school. But looking back, you could see how those opportunities are really what set you up for your future. So that's super cool. And what I want to do, we got about 20 minutes left. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, I want to talk a little bit about your journey with David Letterman on that show and then how it transitioned into you becoming one of the original writers for Family Guy and then how you're still there today. So we'll be back after this quick commercial. Hey, Dallin Schultz here with Rev Equity Group. We just launched an exciting new investment opportunity for those looking to diversify their investments across a thousand plus apartment units in some of the hottest markets in the country. If you are fed up with banks and the stock market and want to invest in hard assets to more effectively grow and preserve your wealth, then click on the link in the show notes for more info or go to investwithrev.com and schedule a short 15-minute intro call so we can determine if our investment strategy is aligned with your goals. It's time to take your financial future into your own hands. Take action, schedule a call, and find out how my team can serve you. At Rev, we make apartment investing easy. All right. Welcome back. So, Mark, share with our listener a little bit about your experience working for David Letterman. Now, that probably just blew your mind when you got that offer. Oh, yeah, totally. I didn't believe it. Yeah, I get this call. And I remember I couldn't sleep. Like this woman, yeah, calls me up. She says, uh, her name was Betsy. And she said, I'm a brand new, uh, I just got promoted to be an agent and I don't have any clients. You know, would you be interested in writing for television? I was like, yeah, yeah. And yeah, then she calls me a couple weeks later. She said, I submitted these cards that you had written to Letterman. They want to meet you. How soon can you get up here? And I flew up there the next day. And basically, I was scrambling, like, how do I prepare for this? What do they ask you? Um, I walked into their room and they're like, hey, how's it going? We like your stuff. You want to work here? And I was like, yeah. Not even an interview, huh? It was, it was a job <laughs> offer. <laughs> right. You know, one thing, like a little detail, these tiny details that I could throw in if they're helpful for any entrepreneurs is when I walked out of that office with a job, I walked past the reception desk and I saw a stack of top 10 lists that were, must have been 700 top 10 lists stacked that were submissions. And I was like, of course, like I did something different, <laughs> not intentionally, but my agent sent something that was uh, unique and different. It was cards. It was greeting cards and cartoons. 
and kind of weird stuff and they sparked to it. So what were the typical submissions like? It was basically the top, if you remember the top 10 lists, they would write a top 10 reasons uh, David is out today. And if you recall the top 10 lists on the late show, it was basically, yeah, you just wrote those. And I ended up writing, that was part of my job when I was on the late show is, yeah, a big part of the day was, uh, let's figure out the top 10 lists. But that's what people were submitting to try to get a job where your agent submitted your cards and your cartoons. And so they were able to see that creative fun side of you outside of just a top 10 list submission. Right. And yeah, I think maybe other like really highly competent top 10 lists would have gotten lost in the shuffle because just there's so many of them. That's what everything is. Mine stood out. That right there is huge. And that was unintentional. Again, like you didn't have that strategy to be like, oh, hey, everyone's submitting these top 10. Let's submit these cards. I don't know if your agent had that foresight or not, or maybe she was just submitting work. But either way, you realize this as you were leaving that job offer that, hey, that was actually different. And that's probably what got me in the room. So to our listener, that's huge. That's different. Be different. Yeah. Find a way to be different because people will see the same thing over and over with a different little flavor or twist to it. Do something different to get their attention. Yeah. See if you can come at it from another angle. Yes. And that takes, that takes some inspiration. That takes time to really think about how you can do that. And sometimes it happens out of luck, but either way, so far, I hope you can gather and see how much action Mark has taken over his years up to this point and opportunities presented themselves, but it was really up to him to take that action. I talk about this all the time. There's things we can control and things we can't control. And if you focus too much on the things you can't control, you're going to lose your mind. (laughs) But focusing on the things you can, in your case, you were able to create cards. You did mail in an envelope to submit to this agency, right? There's still things that you have 100% control of. That's what you need to be focusing on as an entrepreneur and as a business owner. So Mark, share with us a little bit about your time at the David Letterman show. It was exciting. It was massively exciting. It was very stressful. And you know, part of the context that opened the door to me to be at the late show is um, if you recall in the the late 90s, the late night talk show wars, and it was Letterman, Jay Leno, and Conan O'Brien. And it was the big, it was the big thing in television at the time is these talk show wars because they were all competing. So Jay Leno had gotten promoted to be the Tonight Show host and Letterman had felt like he was entitled to that. He had been doing it for much longer and it was the very coveted Johnny Carson seat. And it was the media was all over it, like these, what they called the talk show wars. And it was big ratings, like they dominated the late night ratings, not like today where everything's kind of so splintered. But yeah, the Letterman environment was stressful because, you know, there was so much pressure, so much media attention on this rivalry that was going on. And Letterman had slipped in the ratings if you remember any of this drama over this. But yeah, that's part of what opened up the door for me is I think he was slipping in the ratings and they needed a change at the staff level. And that opened a door for me, 
within a bit more than a year, like it also, I got let go. Like they cleaned staff again. So I was there for maybe like a year and a half. And yeah, it was a thrill. It was very stressful, but what a wild experience, wild opportunity. Yeah, definitely. And just being able to say that you were able to write from one of the most well-known late night show hosts is incredible. That's something very neat and a very uh, cool thing to put on your resume. And I'm sure you learned a lot along the way as well. Oh, when totally. You're in an environment with pressure, I mean, you've got to figure things out. And I'm sure there's a lot. What would you say was your biggest takeaway from working on that show for that year and a half? It was wild. You know, it was very intense. The one thing I look back on now being a screenwriter for a long time is I had come from the world of greeting cards, which like I would go to work, sit down at my desk at American Greetings, and I would draw a box with a pencil, you know, just draw a box. And I would sit there and think like, okay, I would stare at that box and like, what's, I need to put all the elements of a cartoon in that box. And I got good and accustomed to thinking in that way. And when I got to Letterman, I remember, (laughs) I laugh at it now, but like, I didn't know how to write for time. What do you mean? Like we would see like, Hey, write a two minute bit. I'm like, what? I can draw, I could draw me a box. I know how to like have a box and put all the elements in them. And that would be the comedy. But they're like two minutes. What do I do with two minutes? (laughs) So yeah, I had to figure out how to work for time, but yeah. And working for the time, I think that's, would you say that's one of the things that helped open up this opportunity with Family Guy? Yeah, I guess in a way, I mean, when they turned over the staff on Letterman and I was out, you know, I was in New York and I call my agent. I'm like, what should I do? And she's like, if you're going to stay in this business, you should really move out to the West Coast because that's where 99% of the business is. And I had never been to LA, but I took her advice. I didn't know much about the entertainment business still at that point. And I'm like, okay, if that's where I got to go, I'll try it. And I flew out to LA. My agent, when I got there, she said, oh, you know, by the way, I forgot to tell you, but you just missed the hiring season. And most of the shows are staffed up. Um, Seems kind of like a big deal. Yeah, I know. Like you have <laughs> an important you, you detail to miss. <laughs> told me that before I got on a plane. <laughs> but she goes like, yeah, she's like, oh yeah, all the shows are staffed up. But you've got all these greeting cards. So I'm going to call you an animator. And I'm like, I've never animated anything in my life, but yeah, whatever you got to do. And she gets me a meeting at Fox. And she's like, yeah, there's only a couple studios doing animation now, but I'm going to call you an animator. And then she calls me, you know, a couple days later, I got you a meeting at Fox. And I was like, what do I do? She's like, just be friendly and, and funny or whatever. But I waiting for this meeting. I drew, you know, I liked drawing. So I drew a bunch of characters. I drew a couple characters and came up with like a premise for a show. And when I walked into the meeting, it was kind of a nothing meet and greet because all the shows were staffed up because like I missed staffing season. But uh, I bring in all these drawings and they're laughing at these drawings and these like, these are funny. And I told them, yeah, this is for like a college show, animated show that I had an idea for. And I, had all these pictures and then they go like you know you should meet this young guy who's doing a show for us he's an animator like you and i'm like oh yeah yeah that's right i'm an animator and that was seth (laughs) mcfarland 
and an uh, animator as of what like two three weeks <laughs> right uh, with seth mcfarland yeah and I, I met with him and he goes he looked at all my cartoons and we talked about gary larson and i don't know we just hit it off and he's like you should come work on this show and then uh, he handed me a vhs at the time because that was the technology of his short for a show called family guy and i took it home and uh, was like i don't think this is going to go anywhere (laughs) (laughs) and i joined the family guy writer's room which was just starting and i used my first script payments to buy a duplex i'm like i gotta find a way to survive in LA, because I don't know anything about LA. I know the Hollywood industry is very volatile. So yeah, I started investing. I'm like, I need some fallback. And now now you're in a position where you're still doing both. You're st- obviously Family Guy became a much bigger success than you thought it was going to. Exactly. Yeah. Originally. And you've been able to continue to purchase more real estate. And not only that, but be able to bring a lot of your friends in with you through the process of syndications. And when yep. we spoke prior to the show, well, some people that may have interest in getting involved in real estate as well, one of the biggest challenges is where do we find the money? I've got a little bit, but I want this bigger project. Where do we come up with the money? What was your first approach? How did you first gather and raise capital? How did you do it and who was it from? My first uh, raise, I didn't know about raising capital But when I got hired on uh, Family Guy, I used the first two script payments I got. And I don't know, remember what they were for, maybe like 23,000 or something like that. Uh, That's what you got paid for a script. And so I think my first two script payments, I had like close to 47,000 or something like that. And I put down 40,000 to buy a duplex. I was a first time buyer. So I got to do the 10% down. And I bought a duplex in uh, LA, you know, didn't raise any capital. I just used my first a couple of script payments and then fixed it up. Uh, you know, it's funny that the most basic things that, you know, you don't even have to be in a, a real estate investor because I certainly wasn't, but um, I could tell that the location was rapidly improving and I could tell that it was a kind of a dumpy building that could easily be cosmetically improved. And I was like, I don't know anything about real estate, but I know you got to be in a good location that's growing. And you also, you know, if you have the ability to like transform a property, you know, through value add, that's another win. I just plunged in, you know, not knowing anything and tried it. And I had a great success. You know, it took me decades in hindsight to see why I did well at that time. Like I did well because I picked a good location and I picked a property that had the potential to become dramatically more attractive. But a big factor, I think, when I look back is I moved out to LA probably like two or three years after the uh, earthquake, the 94 earthquake, and then the LA riots. So LA was really kind of like licking its wounds at that time. And I was kind of oblivious. I was in New York and I wasn't paying attention to what was going on in LA, but there was a little bit of luck that it's taken me like decades in hindsight to identify. But yeah, I think that helped me. That's a long story short. I think I I would have done well anyways, but because of some of those tailwinds blowing in my favor of the recovery from those events in LA is uh, I bought that for 370 
and I sold it for 1.27 million. That's incredible. And unfortunately, we're up on time here, Mark. This went by way too quick. But a common theme that I've been hearing you through your conversation, a lot of these opportunities seem to have to do with timing. Like timing was right. just luck. was just right. And call it luck, if you will. But I mean, you were still taking action, right? And I do lean towards the saying, the harder I work, the more, the luckier I get. <laughs> the luck- luckier you right. get. Yeah, yeah. But a lot of it is timing too. And that you had to go through these certain experiences to get to where you are today. And it was all part of the journey. So what advice could you share to someone that's trying to force the timing or trying to accelerate that timing? Yeah. And I think it's a matter of just taking action. Like, like you said, like I could have chalked up that duplex success to not like, I enjoy sort of pointing to like the luck, like, oh my God, the luck of this thing is kind of hilarious and great. But at the same time, like, you know, I'm always taking action. And part of that initial duplex was the leverage you know the power of a 10% down for a first time owner first time buyers most other uh real estate investors have to put down 25% 20% something like that but as a first time buyer you know there was this uh opportunity to put 10% down and that 1.5x my leverage which you know because I added value successfully, like, yeah, that doubled, you know, more than doubled what it would have been on a normal investment. You know, I like to take action and I like to dive in and learn. And uh, that's what I was doing. I was reading every book I could get my hands on about real estate. And that's where I found some of the angles and strategies that I used. Love it. Well, Mark is, uh, again, really appreciate your time and, and coming on the show and sharing with myself and our listener your journey. As we wrap this up, I like to go through these final four questions that I ask every guest on the show. And the first one being is, what is one absolute book recommendation for those looking to scale and further develop their millionaire mind? Oh, I got to mention a book I'm reading right now, Atomic Habits. It's, it's been around for a while, but uh, I picked it up and I'm like, I could not put it down. It's such a great book. That's in my top five, that book right there. So awesome recommendation. And Mark, what has been one of your favorite quotes that you've embodied and lived by? I think one that I found in high school uh, was Ralph Waldo Emerson, uh, the great will not condescend to take anything seriously. Say that again. The great will... The great will not condescend to take anything seriously. Awesome. (laughs) And Mark, if there is one thing you could share with fellow business owners that are beginning or simply trying to get to that next level, what would it be? Yeah, it's got to be take action, take massive action, learn as you go, and maybe a little bit of, you know, don't take yourself so seriously. You know, you're going to get punched in the face a lot, but that's okay. Roll with it. Look for the opportunities and take (laughs) action when they present themselves. Right. Mark, how can our listener learn more about you and your business and what it is that you do. Sure. Um, let me see. We've got a podcast. It's called the Wild West Real Estate Podcast. And uh, my company is called Quantum Capital. And you could look up quantumcapitalinc.com. And otherwise, uh, reach out. Just reach out to me. Uh, my uh, email address is my full name, Mark Hentman. Uh, it's probably going to be somewhere listed on this. And just add a me.com to the end of it. Awesome. 
Look, this has been an incredible conversation with Mark. And if this is your first time listening, I'm so glad that you tuned in. People have been asking me what my company does. So since I have you here listening to my show, I'll share that with you now. So my company partners with busy professionals just like Mark that are looking to experience significant tax savings, have more to invest, and even reinvest their hard-earned capital. And we work with other successful business owners like you by offering them opportunities to invest alongside us in large apartment deals, just like Mark. And in fact, we're in a position to be able to partner up with people like Mark. So it really really creates a win-win. At Rev, we found that most successful business owners have a strong desire to give and to serve, and we simply provide the vehicle to enable them to grow and preserve their wealth so they can give up their time and financial success more abundantly and freely. If you've been wanting to get involved in apartment investing, but have been too busy to figure out where or how to start, then you can find out how I could serve you by visiting investwithrev.com and schedule a 15-minute discovery call. So many people think they need millions of dollars to get started investing in apartments, and both Mark and I will tell you that that is not the case, and you can likely get started today. It can be overwhelming betting the right investment and the right operator, but at Rev, we make apartment investing easy. Mark, thanks again for coming on the show and just sharing your incredible journey and and just how you've been able to just roll with life and capitalize on those opportunities that were presented to you. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me on. It was very fun. And to our listener, remember, you can't have a million dollar dream with a minimum wage work ethic. So go out there and earn your win for today. And we'll catch you on the next episode. Hope you got value from this episode of The Millionaire Mind, a journey into the mindset of successful business owners. If you want to get results, you've got to take the right steps to get there. Dallin hosts a free weekly educational webinar focused on teaching you how to start investing in apartments so you too can experience the benefits of real estate ownership without doing any of the heavy lifting. There you can gain insights, connect with others like you, and ask Dallin all your burning questions about how you can start owning apartments today. Go to themillionairemind.us. That link is in the show notes.